Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Highly Functional. This is Brianne Showman, and I am joined today by Margie. Margie and I had a great conversation diving into the mechanics of the body, how everything works together, flows together, and how the foot or why the foot is so important when we're talking about how the body moves. Whether you are an athlete, a clinician, or a coach, I think you'll find this conversation highly valuable. So let's tune in. Margie, thank you for joining me today. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? I'm doing great, thank you. Well, I'm excited to dive in and talk to you today. Um, You work with anatomy and motion, you do some Pilates work, you do a little bit of a number of things, um, which is why we were connected to kind of start diving into that side of things. But before we dive into all of that, let's start with the first question of who are you? All right. Well, um, I don't know what to call myself, like many people in this profession. So I made up a title for myself. I call myself a rehabilitative movement specialist because I just wanted to be kind of clear to the people in my local community um, that I'm not a fitness trainer. And I'm not knocking any of these other professions, but I just tried to come up with a title that made it as clear as possible what I do. Um, because I do work primarily with people who are either uh, coping with chronic pain or trying to recover from an injury. So mostly in the therapeutic realm. I did come from a Pilates background. I no longer call myself a Pilates teacher. Nothing. I still love Pilates, but it just doesn't reflect what I do on a day-to-day basis anymore. And I've done gobs of continuing ed like many of us, you know, who, who kind of like going down the rabbit hole, that would be me for sure. I love going down the rabbit hole. Um, so I've done lots of continuing ed and mainly, um, I studied with a man named Jean-Claude West, who he's well known within the Pilates community, or at least he was for people of my generation. I know there's a whole new generation (laughs) now, um, but there was a time where everybody kind of knew his name, even though he doesn't publicize himself at all. And he teaches, um, osteopathic techniques and just really, I remember when I would take his workshops, I came away feeling like there was a science fiction movie when I was a kid, I think it was in the sixties. And I I think it was called the incredible voyage. I'm not sure where these scientists shrunk themselves down and literally like traveled through the body. So that's kind of how I felt when I came back from a Jean-Claude workshop. I just had this amazing concept of how the joints actually work. So it was very biomechanically oriented. Um, So anatomy and motion for me was, uh, it was just a very natural transition because it is extremely joint centric. And I already thought that way. And so um, it just was kind of a, a very natural transition. I've been studying that now since 2014. It is the primary technique that I use. And in fact, recently, I wish I remember when, maybe it was a year ago now, uh, maybe six months, I I don't remember. Um, Gary um, basically kind of hired some of us to be quote unquote AIM mentors or AIM is anatomy in motion. That's the abbreviation um, to, and to be able to be instructors of his material and help people who are trying to learn his material. So I'm, I'm pretty entrenched in that world. It's, it's definitely the biggest influence on my work. And it's kind of how I got here today, because um, the person who connected us, John Goldthorpe, who's a running coach, has also taken the anatomy motion training. And I believe he's the one who connected us. Yes, that would be accurate. Yeah. 
For sure. So with your rehab movement specialist, um, work mostly, mostly with people with chronic pain, what does that, and obviously I know every person's going to be a little bit different, but as a general, like, what are you doing that's different from say what a personal trainer is doing or a physical therapist is doing, or like, how would you really dive in with someone and really figure out like what's going on with them and then help them to get past that? I think, uh, there's a couple of differences, but one of the biggest differences is, um, let me just explain a little bit about how anatomy and motion works because yeah. it is the biggest influence on my practice. So, uh, what Gary Ward has done has, uh, basically created, a, a model of human gait. Uh, you know, we, everybody divides gait into phases in order to have a conversation about gait. It's just a logical way to divide it up. What happens in a single footstep? And we typically, most people are talking about heel strike. Some people call it loading, um, single leg stance, and then a, maybe heel lift and propulsion. Different people have different names for the phases, but everybody seems to divide the gait, a single footstep into phases in order to uh, analyze it and discuss it. What Gary has done is um, define for every phase of gait what every single joint in the body is doing in all three dimensions. So it's very joint centric, which really fit well with how I think already. And we can talk more about why I'm so joint centric and why it was such a good fit. But um, then, so what I do is I, we have this model of human movement and just to be clear, um, it's not just to help people walk better, but gait is an amazing entry point for both assessing basic human movement and quote unquote, correcting or coming up with movement solutions or optimizing whatever word we wanna use for improving how people move. So um, the brilliance of using gait, it, again, it's not just to help people walk better, but it's a repetitive human movement um, even a sedentary person I once read takes about 2000 steps a day. So 2000 times a day, they're repeating the gait cycle. So you can imagine for a more active person, how many times they're repeating the gait cycle and you can't hide anything. The way you walk is the way you walk. So it allows me to observe somebody and pick up what their biases are. And if they have, and I'll just give you an example. And it's one that I see in real life all the time. For example, and maybe I see it so often because it's kind of what my body does as well. <laughs> so how that happens with us, right? I know. Sometimes when we see things a lot, I'm like, oh, I wonder if that's what I, but yeah. So a, a calm, I'll just give you, this is just one example, but I'll observe somebody and I'll notice that their rib cage rotates right center, right center, but it never rotates left. And I don't think I need to explain on this podcast that the rib cage actually needs to rotate right and left. So I would pick that up in gait, but I can almost guarantee that if a motion that this person is repeating thousands of times per day, their rib cage goes right center, right center, and never goes left. My guess is that in the rest of their life, when they're gardening or shoveling or picking up a baby or whatever else they're doing, they're probably going to have a bias toward rotating the rib cage right. So it's not that we're just helping them walk better. Yes, that's a great byproduct uh, of doing this kind of work, but it's also just helping them restore the ability to rotate the rib cage both right and left. So we use gait to assess because like I said, it uses every joint in the body in all three 
planes of motion. So you can't hide anything. The way you walk is the way you walk. And almost every footstep looks pretty identical. Um, and within a, one individual, just to be clear, I don't mean between everybody. And, um, but it's also a great way to restore or remind the brain, hey, you actually do have a motion rotation left. And so um, I might use uh, a phase of gait that involves rotation left. So I'm gonna pick out like, huh, they don't like to rotate their rib cage left and they don't like to pronate the left foot. And this is just a, an example. And what phase of gait has left foot pronation and left rib cage rotation? Oh, that would be what Gary calls suspension phase. Many people call loading phase. So I might work up to introducing the brain in a safe controlled environment where the brain's not gonna go, oh my goodness, rotating left is really scary. So in a safe controlled environment where the brain's not in survival mode, reintroduce the brain to movement options it's forgotten about. And in particular, coupled with other movement options uh, like left pronation uh, because they go together. And so, and, and then we just notice that people start walking better and um, they pronate better when they go to um, land from a jump or weightlifting on, you know, the eccentric phase. It's con everything's controversial, of course, but there are many people who say that actually a little bit of pronation for loading the feet to uh, recoil and then um, the concentric phase of a squat, for example. Um, so that was kind of a long-winded answer, but that, you know, so I'll analyze somebody's posture just like everyone else, like where are they starting from? So if they're starting in a rotation right in the rib cage, well, maybe they're never going to get left because a single footstep happens in less than a second. So I'm going to, I want to know where they're starting from. I'm going to watch how they walk and analyze their gait and then reintroduce motions based on gait, using gait, or a, a kind of an exercise that mimics a phase of gait. And I'm also, there is um, a little bit of a focus. Gary wrote a book called What the Foot, WTF, so everybody thinks it's all about the foot. There is a foot focus. It's not just about the foot, but it reconnects, the connection of the foot to the rest of the body, to the body above, is critical. So um, that's a long-winded answer for that's kind of what a session with me would look like. Awesome. Um, and we'll definitely dive into the foot, but one thing I want to um, really draw attention to some of you said is that you train in patterns or at least like making different actions happen at a time. Cause I, you know, so often we see people, especially if they're just searching for answers on their own, it's like, well, I can't do this motion. So we're just going to find an exercise to work on this motion forgetting that like our body works in huge patterns and together. And it's like, we can't do, you know, to keep on the same thing, left rib cage rotation in isolation because other things have to happen throughout the body. Exactly. Yeah. So let's dive into the foot a little bit of most people who ever listen to this podcast know I absolutely love the foot and we talk about it a lot because it is so important. And I feel it's under, um, and under talked about, I don't even know where I'm going there. Um, why is, I guess, why is the foot so important? And why is, even though, like you said, it is a highly debatable topic, but why is pronation so important? 
Wow. Uh, okay. So ideally, well, so we're going to talk, I think most people would agree that the primary function of the foot is walking. Um, if not the primary function, certainly a primary function of the foot. And so as I described earlier, we tend to break uh, the, a single footstep into phases when we're talking about gait, but I can simplify it even more from you know, heel strike to loading to single leg stance to propulsion to swing. I can simplify it even more. In the load-bearing phases of gait, so um, not swing phase. Swing phase is important. I'm, I don't, I'm not discounting it, but uh, the foot is just a lot more interesting when it's in contact with the ground. Um, so in the load-bearing phases of gait, I can kind of simplify it. The foot has one of two functions. It's either receiving the mass of your body or what some people call loading phase or what Gary calls um, suspension phase, suspension intent, like the suspension in your car. Or it's moving your mass forward. So like propulsion phase, it's either, it's doing one of those two things. It's either receiving your mass or it's moving your mass forward. Uh, the function of a pronating foot is to receive your mass. So a pronating foot is, um, I think it's commonly known as a mobile adapter. Uh, the foot is unlocked. We did not evolve to walk on hard surfaces. In um, We evolved to walk on uneven terrain. So the foot needs to adapt to uneven terrain. And a pronating foot is a shock absorbing foot. And then I think it's pretty commonly known that a supinating foot is a rigid lever in order to propel yourself forward because would you want to propel the mass of your body forward off a floppy mobile adapter or a rigid lever? I think it's pretty clear that it's going to be more effective to propel your mass forward off a rigid lever. Um, so it's a pronation and supination are both foot functions that I just described, but they're also a foot shape. So the whole form versus function conversation, how a form and function are related conversation. Um, and if your foot takes, so, you know, I know now on social media, everything is about feet and gait and feet and gait. And so everybody's heard a million times by now, your foot has 26 bones and 33 joints, but your foot has 26 bones and 33 joints. We do hear it over and over. That's a lot of joints. So the foot is meant to move. I mean, if, you know, it's not a solid one bone block or even just two bones. It's got a lot of joints and it's meant to have a lot of movement and the ideal movement of your foot, because gait is repetitive, is to move from receiving the mass of your body to propelling your mass forward, to receiving the mass of your body to propelling your mass forward. It goes back and forth. So it pronates and then it supinates and it pronates and it supinates over and over. That's what it does in the gait cycle. And if your foot takes that journey from pronation to supination and back, you have moved every joint in your foot in all three planes of motion. So, and one other, you know, if we're going to go down the rabbit hole, I love going down the rabbit hole. Another reason pronation is so important besides being a shock absorber and a mobile adapter, when the arch lowers, the tissue on the plantar surface or the bottom of the foot lengthens like muscles and the plantar fascia. And this tissue has a property of elasticity. So you've now loaded um, this tissue that has the property of elasticity in preparation for a recoil to supinate the foot. But not only have you loaded the tissue mechanically, 
but also neurologically, there's a response. So the, the brain responds to, oh, this muscle or whatever, it's got sensors and tendons and ligaments and muscles, proprioceptors that tell it uh, what, what the foot is doing. So it's also giving information to the brain that's like, okay, you've pronated enough. Now it's time to start supinating. So um, that's why the motion within the foot is so important and why pronation and supination are so important. Yeah, absolutely. So with all of that in mind, what, and if you haven't learned this, that's fine. I'm just curious on your thoughts on it. When someone's wearing orthotics or a supportive shoe, what can happen long-term to the body when the foot has lost that ability to go into that pronation moment? Well, it, you know, pronation and supination, Every time you move a joint, you know, we all know the song, the foot bones connected to the ankle bone. I mean, everybody, you know, dem bones, I think it's called. So it's when you, um, there's a relationship, you know, in, if you, Gary has some online courses now, and he's now calling pronation and supination kind of full body shape. So there's a relationship when the foot pronates the talus, part of pronation is the talus bone is internally rotating. If the talus bone is internally rotating, the tibia is internally rotating. If the tibia is internally rotating, it's pulling the femur into somewhat of internal rotation. And then there's a response in the pelvis, um, but it's not just, okay, another component of pronation is the arch lowering. So now we're more, more in the sagittal plane and that's coupled with ankle dorsiflexion, which is coupled with, um, knee flexion. So there, there's just a relationship up the chain, not to mention just plain old simple shock absorption. If your shot, if your foot isn't shock absorbing for you, then the shock absorbent absorption is going to happen excessively up the chain. Like the load isn't being distributed through all the foot bones. It's going right to the knee and then the hip and then the low back. So actually a lot of times you come to work with me with low back pain and it's like, yeah, you're not pronate. You're not shock absorbing with your foot. So there's that connection to the rest of the body, but also there's a rotary, a very important rotary connection with the talus bone internally and externally rotating, and then driving the lower extremity into external rotation. And we know that an externally rotated femur is coupled with a posteriorly tilting pelvis, et cetera, et cetera. So the link goes all the way up the chain and it's not hard to feel like you can stand up and put all the weight on the inside of your feet. And that's not true pronation, but it's kind of a good test. And, and if you allow your pelvis to respond, you probably will feel it anteriorly tilt. And if you put all the weight on the outside, kind of mimicking supination, you'll probably feel your pelvis uh, post posteriorly tilt and um, your femurs externally rotate. So there's, there's just coupled motions. Whenever I teach a foot class, I start with change where you're weight bearing on your feet and notice what it does up the chain change how you're holding your pelvis and notice where what it changes in your feet so they're connected yeah absolutely and I love that you use the shock or talk about the shock absorption like I love the analogy of a vehicle like we've all been in that vehicle that has lost its shocks and we just know how jarring that feels like that's what happens to your body when your arch doesn't absorb the shock <laughs> yep you know, I still have a mountain bike that doesn't have shocks. I'm just, I, I don't know. I got one when I was 
before everybody had shocks on their mountain bikes. And I've just kept it all these years. And I'm like, what am I doing when I ride on right. the road? Bumpy dirt roads. I'm like, what am I doing? Why didn't I get shocks? But anyway, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Um, all right, cool. So when when you're working with someone like we you and I both know, like it's not just kind of like, okay, retrain these patterns, cool. The body gets it, let's go. Like there's a process here of it kind of like starting to learn and then really like being an ingrained pattern. Um, how do you go from, how does someone go from just kind of like, okay, my body knows how to move there now to, all right, every time I am gardening, it's doing exactly what it's supposed to be doing. Well, I think that's where, uh, the practice in a safe controlled environment, because, you know, the primary function of the brain is survival. So as soon as it feels under threat, you're not in a learning mode, um, but it's, but if you're in a safe controlled environment where your brain doesn't particularly feel threatened, that's the ideal environment to re-expose the brain to movement options that it's perhaps forgotten about. And, um, you know, Gary has these five rules of human movement, but one is that the brain is hardwired for perfection. And I have to kind of say that I'm pretty, I've pretty much bought into that. So it's, you know, I've observed this so many times that, um, for example, that rib cage that rotates right center, right center, and never left. And I find um, a phase of gait that has several components that the person is missing, not just uh, right rotation of the rib cage, but perhaps pronation of the left foot. Uh, go, you know, I think everybody can kind of picture when your left foot is forward in gait or running, your rib cage is rotating toward it to the left. So I might have somebody actually just repeat the exercise five times, only five times, but with a lot of focus and specificity. And I can't even tell you, I mean, I, I've been doing this now since 2014, my jaw still drops sometimes. You, you watch them walk again afterwards. And it's kind of like the brain was just waiting for permission to use this motion that it had forgotten about, you know, and when the brain decided not to rotate the rib cage left, there was probably a really good reason at the time, you know, we, we may never know, or maybe we can figure it out from the injury history, but there was probably a really good reason, but that reason has ever long since resolved, but the brain just forgot that it had this motion, this rib cage rotation left motion available. And when we remind it, it puts it back into the pattern pretty quickly. And I also, you know, I have a love hate relationship with social media, probably like a lot of people, but there's a neuroscientist from Stanford, Dr. Huberman, and I, tons of people follow him. I think everybody should follow him. He so generously really wants to make neuroscience research. I mean, he's got his own lab at Stanford. He's a mucky muck, you know, he really wants to make it accessible to lay people. And he has a little post, this is from maybe a year or two ago, I don't remember about how the adult brain learns. And I literally send it to all my new clients when I send them their first uh, set of homework exercises. So it's really, um, you know, he talks about focus, 
um, gosh, I, I should remember. I, I don't remember exactly. You know, it's basically you don't just mindlessly do these movements. And there's um, diminishing returns if you try to do too many, because you have to really have it has to be meaningful and focused. And then um, I forget what the third one is. Here's a here's a you know, a post of Instagram post I send to all my clients while <laughs> myself, but anyway, um, you know, it's kind of about how the, it, it, I don't think more is better. It's uh, there's another, that's another quote. I forget who it's Alex, somebody, I can't think of his last name right now, but it's, it's not, it's um, more is not better. Better is better. So we don't do high reps. It's just, you got to be really present and focused and, um, there's a, a kind of loop between a conceptual understanding of what the joints are doing and how the, all the pieces fit together. And then equally importantly in the anatomy and motion world is the experiential understanding. And we often go back and forth between the two. And I think that's another reason that AIM resonated with me so much is that I was already thinking in those terms of both, I think, um, you know, I'm always getting out the skeleton and showing my clients, this is what your hip joint looks like. And this is what it does when you're walking. And, and, and then I, I think it helps them do the movements better if they can sort of picture their bones. Like most people can't even point to their hip joint. You ask them where their hip joint is and they point to the pelvis or they point to the greater trochanter, you know, they just have no concept. And I think that people can really learn movement better if they can visualize their joints. That's a big part of how I teach. Yeah. That's awesome. I think something you said there, um, or something you said that really resonated with me because I see it all the time talking with people. And that's like actually focusing on exercises. Cause I don't know how many times I talk to people who are doing appropriate exercises, but it's like, are you just going through the motions to go through the exercise? Or are you really paying attention to like what your foot's doing, what your ankle's doing, what your body's doing through that movement. And more times than not, when people aren't making progress, they truly, they're just going through the motions of the yes. movement. Absolutely. In fact, I tell my clients and I teach classes, I tell my students, I, you know, I'm using the word exercise because that's the word, you know, and that's the word you expect. But every time I use the word, once I kind of get to know them a little bit, you know, but I say every time I use the word exercise, I want you to start translating in your brain and swap out, swap it out with the word experience or exploration. That's what we're really doing is we're giving the brain an experience of joint motions that it might not have visited for a really long time. And we're exploring um, the course that I took, I think six times, it's a six day immersion course of, um, I don't think Gary's teaching that way anymore. COVID, he had, you know, like everybody that he had to pivot. But he, when I started taking anatomy in motion, it was a six day immersion course. And it was called Finding Center. And it's really, you know, if you think about, so for example, that rib cage that rotates right center, right center, and never left, then for that structure, it's perception of center for that structure has changed and it's kind of veered off to the right. Does that make sense? Like it's no longer facing forward because the range of motion that I'm visiting is reduced. So my perception of center for that structure of my body is changed to be slightly rotated to the right. So the, you know, how do you go come back and find center? And that's what the course is called. I, I, I just think that's such a brilliant name. How do you find center? 
you have to know where your edges are. That, that, that's how center is defined, right? How can you define center if you don't know where the edges are? You, you know what I'm saying? Does that yeah, kind of yeah. sense? So the course, a, a lot of the work we do is just helping people find, oh, my full range of motion in my rib cage that, that I can rotate left. And then if I've got my full range back, then my perception of center for that structure is now actually center. And that's how we find centers. We find the edges or the full range that's available for all the structures and joints in the body in all three dimensions. So there's a lot to work on. There definitely is. Let's take a quick break to talk about power insole. When I first heard about this product, I was automatically turned off because of the name. I thought it helped support the foot, which was a huge no for me. I quickly found out I was wrong. Power Insole is a two by two gel pad that goes inside your shoe that works on your body's cells to help improve your recovery and your performance. I've been testing this out for a couple weeks now and really am amazed by the results. Like my body just feels better. My legs don't feel as heavy. And one really cool thing is you can put it on an area that's maybe injured or just achy and that pain and stiffness goes away quickly, or at least it did for me, which I thought was awesome. If you are looking for just a simple, easy way that you can enhance your recovery and your performance, I really encourage you to check out Power Insole and give it a test ride for yourself. You can find more information about them and pick up one for yourself at getyourfixpt.com slash powerinsole. And if you use code getyourfix at checkout, you can save 10%. You can also go to my partner's page, getyourfixpt slash partners and find the link directly to Power Insole as well as all my other partners. And now let's get back to the show. On that concept of finding center then, like, do you notice over say maybe one week, two week period that their center almost like shifts a little bit as they're like, okay, I'm getting a little bit further and further into this range of motion. So now my center is shifting a little. Like Absolutely. I mean, you know, no technique works for everybody. No teacher works for everybody, you know, and, and I, I'd say anybody who tells you their technique works for, for everyone. I'd say run and, you know, turn and run as fast as you can. But I, uh, you know, so of course I've had people come to see me where nothing changed and they're like, this doesn't work for me at all. But I have to say, I mean, one of the reasons I've gone so deep into anatomy and motion and I'm so kind of like, you know, I sound like I'm in a cult, but honestly, I'm Gary Ward's most annoying student as far as, I, I mean, I question everything and I'm super skeptical, but I've kind of like come around over time, my skepticism the answers, the questions that I have have been satisfactorily answered. So I'm kind of like, oh, okay, this really works as better than anything else I've ever studied. Um, and basically, yeah, the things, things change pretty quick. It's shocking to me still. I've had, um, so for example, let's take the posture where you see the, the, everybody can picture this, the pelvis is way forward of the feet all of the uh, weight is in the forefeet. I think most people can kind of picture that posture. And I never correct people by saying, okay, we need to bring your pelvis back over your feet. 
we do an exercise called sagittal cogs, but it's just basically um, helping the brain find anterior tilt, posterior tilt of the pelvis, anterior tilt, posterior tilt of the rib cage, anterior tilt, posterior tilt of the skull. So all of your primary structures in the sagittal plane, you're experiencing the full range of motion. And then we couple the motion. So um, posterior tilt of the pelvis is coupled with anterior tilt of the rib cage, getting, you know, spinal flexion. And um, I honestly, I mean, my jaw drops. I'm like, really? All we did was like sagittal plane cogs. And now all of a sudden their pelvis is over their feet. I never cued them to. I can't even tell you how many times I've seen that. Um, and that's just one example. So yeah, people find, I think the body wants to find center. It's the most efficient, effortless place to be. So I think the brain goes, oh, thank you. Yeah, this is so much easier, you know? Yeah, definitely. I, something that's coming to mind as you're talking about that is I, and it's semi-related is like, I know like learning something in controlled environment, carrying it over to more of a dynamic environment, like the carryover is a little bit slower there. It takes a little bit longer for the body to respond and do what it's supposed to do under loads, like speed or like intense loading. Yeah. How is the carryover from running or from walking, like learning, cleaning everything up, walking to running, do those things correct pretty quickly there? Or is there a little bit of a delay? You know, um, the reason I'm here, like we said, you know, John Goldthorpe, connected us. And uh, let me just tell you my kind of funny history with him because, um, and this will be an answer to your question because he refers um, a lot of runners to me. Actually, he doesn't refer that many people to me anymore. And I'll tell you why. I, I think it's because that man is so smart and he's gotten so good at this, doing this kind of work himself that he doesn't need me anymore. Which I'm, thrilled <laughs> I'm thrilled. You know, I'm just thrilled, but um, I, I'm guessing that's what it is. I don't think, but he all of a sudden decided that, you know, cause his runners that he referred to me have done very well, but um, he, when he first started referring runners to me, he just had less experience in this kind of work. Um, he had only taken the course once. And I think he started referring runners to me and because um, actually he worked with me on one of his own injuries and then he ended up getting better. And it was at a time in my life where like, I'll just say my dad was in hospice. So life is a little bit of a blur. I mean, it was a wonderful, but you know, he lived a nice long life. It was a wonderful death, but he was, when he was actually in hospice, life is a blur. And that's when I worked with John. So uh, that was in January of 2019. And all of a sudden that summer, I started getting runners from like Texas or wherever, you know, Pennsylvania. I'm like, how did you find me? I'm like in the middle of nowhere. I don't advertise. And they're like, yeah, coach told me to give you a call. So I think when the runners actually saw me on zoom and I'm clearly not a runner, I mean, I'm, you know, I live in the mountains. I hike all the time. I think it would be very credible if you saw me and, you know, I said, Hey, I backpack all the time and I kayak and all that, but I am clearly not a runner. If you look at me, I just don't have that build. And I, you know, I think they were a little surprised, like, wait, who is this woman he's sending us to? But it worked for runners as well, because, you know, basically you have to walk before you can run. And a lot of the components, even though the timing is very different, 
you know, you still need contralateral rotation between the rib cage and the pelvis. You need things to organize around a still skull, all of the movement in the body below to organize. You don't want to run down the street with your head bobbing up and down or side to side or, you know, so everything's organizing around a still skull and you need to be able to pronate and you need to be able to supinate. And those are things that are common with gait. So, um, it actually carries over shockingly well. I, I was even a little skeptical, like how, how I got to work with runners, but you know, I have kind of a, a little bit of a niche now. I mean, it's not my only population, but I, I have a little bit of a niche with marathon runners now. So. Very cool. Very cool. Is there anything that we have not talked about yet today that you feel is really helpful or beneficial for the listeners to get an understanding of? Um, let me think. That's pretty open-ended. You know, in a previous conversation with you, I we could revisit... Um, we had started talking about the wedges in anatomy and motion. Oh, yes. And I wanted to just clear, clarify a few things about, uh, there's so much confusion about how these wedges that are really pretty integral to anatomy and motion. So we could talk about that if you wanted to. Um, that's just one option. Yeah, let's dive into that because that is, um, especially when we're talking about the feet, it's very beneficial for, okay. for that foot stuff. So um, for people who don't know anything about anatomy and motion, um, we use these wedges. And so to just picture what they look like, if you took a yoga wedge, which I think most people can picture, and you sliced it uh, into chunks, so you have like lots of wedges out of one long wedge. Um, and we tend to have narrower ones and wider ones that we use in anatomy and motion. So Gary's actually, uh, fabricates, um, he doesn't actually fabricate them, but he, he has them fabricated anatomy and motion wedges, which are very similar to the yoga wedge, but they're uh, much more durable because most people who end up using wedges and falling in love with the wedges, and I'm going to talk about how we use them in a minute, um, use them a lot, like almost every day and you're weight bearing on them. So the fact that they're durable is, um, really, it's uh, very beneficial. Um, and so what there, so if you can picture it's, it's a wedge and, um, what they're used for, and they're very integral to anatomy and motion They're they're used for many different things. And I just want to kind of clear things up because some people think that they're used to wedge the foot into a neutral position, almost like an orthotic. And I just want to um, dispel that myth right away. So they're used for in multiple ways, but I'll, I'll explain how they're used. So for example, if you can picture a typical uh, foot that's we would call supinated, very you know rigid, high arch foot with an and almost always what goes with that is an inverted calcaneus. So I think most people can picture that foot: high arch, pretty rigid, inverted calcaneus. So if I wanted to teach that foot to pronate. I might want to encourage the calcaneus to evert. So if you picture now, I can take this wedge and slip it under the calcaneus coming in from the outside of the foot. So it's perpendicular to the foot. It's coming out from outside of the heel, under the heel, and it's sloping down toward the midline of the body. So just take a moment to try to picture that. I've put the wedge under the calcaneus, 
coming in from the outside of the foot, perpendicular to the foot sloping down toward the midline of the body. If you picture the bottom of the calcaneus, it's kind of round. So because it's now on a slope, it's going to roll to the inside or it's going to evert. So we can use the wedges to encourage missing motions. That's one example. So a calcaneus stuck in inversion, I stick a wedge under it, the wedge is slanted in a way that's going to encourage the calcaneus to evert. Now let's think about a foot, for example, that's really flat-footed. We've all seen these feet and the calcaneus is extremely everted. Um, but, we know that components, I think everybody knows this, components of pronation are rear foot eversion and the talus bone internally rotated. I think those are pretty universally accepted components of pronation. So I have a foot in front of me. If you work with feet at all, you've all seen this foot. We've all seen it where it's extremely flat footed and the rear foot is calcaneus is extremely everted but the talus isn't really internally rotating. So they're getting all of their pronation in one plane of motion, the frontal plane. And I call that like dumping into eversion. So they're not getting the other plane. They're not getting that talus internal rotation that should couple with. In that case, I might use a wedge to block or decelerate excessive motion in one plane to encourage more motion in another. So specifically in this example, I would take the wedge and I would put it in on the inside of the foot, slanting toward the outside. And it's going to block the calcaneus from excessively everting. And, and when it stops excessively everting, then it's going to go into another plane of motion. It's gonna go, it's gonna allow it we're blocking the excessive motion in the frontal plane. It's going to allow it to find the transverse plane motion. I use that all the time. And then, so that's one way. So, so far we've talked about uh, accelerating or encouraging a motion that's missing. We can use it to block or decelerate excessive motion, but we can also use it to fill space. And this is just the most wonderful feeling in the world. And I might even invite the listeners, if you feel like it, stand up. And if you want to hit pause and go get, if you have a wedge, grab a wedge, that'd be great. But otherwise just grab a sock or a washcloth or something. And I'm gonna actually invite you to stand up and let's all stand. Let's use the right leg as the working leg. Stand on your right leg, right leg is straight, right leg is a vertical pillar. So you're gonna shift your weight onto the right leg. There's a little bit of weight on the left, but not much at all. Your right leg is a vertical pillar. Hip stays over knee, stays over ankle at all times. So you're not allowed to come off that vertical pillar. And then I'm just gonna um, invite you to maintain contact with your big toe ball or big toe knuckle. Actually, this is a podcast for professionals. I can actually say, first metatarsal head, I forget, I'm not talking to clients. Um, so maintaining contact with the first metatarsal head, that's the rule and the uh, fifth metatarsal head and the heel, basically maintaining contact with your tripod, rotate your head, your shoulder girdle, your rib cage and your pelvis to the right. And you should feel 
your arch lifting automatically and a sense of your big toe ball being sucked down toward the ground without you telling it to. If you don't feel that sense of the big toe ball being sucked down onto the ground, that's where I might bring the ground up to meet the big toe ball because it wants to suck down. But sometimes it's lived so long in a kind of inverted or varus position in the forefoot that it, it no longer, it's, it doesn't hit the ground. And, um, and so we bring the ground up to meet the big toe ball. And then you really just get a sense of the foot going into a beautiful supination, which includes plantar flexion of the first ray. And you don't have to tell it to just by rotating the body above toward the foot. And the rotation goes all the way down to the talus. You will feel your big toe ball. Just if you find the right height of the wedge or the sock or whatever you're putting underneath it, you should get a sense of it sucking down onto the wedge. So we can also use it to fill space and bring the ground up to meet, for example, a very varus forefoot. Awesome. Thank you for all that detail. And it's really funny after we had our conversation last and we were talking about that, also was like, oh, yeah, I've was using that a couple of years ago and just stopped because, you know, we all kind of forget about things over time. Of course. Uh, but I know um, from working with another colleague in the past, he's like, you do not pronate your right foot. I was like, I know it doesn't like to. So I started using it again to just do some standing exercises to force yeah. that version of the heel. So, which is I, better. I mean, I have to say, and I've been doing a survey with my colleagues, like, I don't think anybody's ever walked through the door of my treatment room who could uh, optimally pronate and supinate both feet. I don't think I've ever seen a single so far. And I've been doing a survey with my colleagues. Um, most people are going to, you know, at some point in their life, they have an ankle sprain or something happens and they're going to have a strategy of trying to get off one foot and onto the other without even knowing it could be when they're four years old. And then their body just never figured out how to go back to center and typically a strategy to get off one foot and onto the other side would be to pronate the foot. It's gonna kind of push you over to the other side. I mean, that's just one strategy, it's a possibility. Um, but, or you could really supinate the foot that you're trying to, you know, that you're trying to move on to. Like there, it's just one possible strategy, but for whatever reason, you know, the life, the, the way we move the body, the way we hold ourselves, the way we walk reflects the life we've lived up until now. And um, most people can no longer optimally pronate and supinate both feet. So I, I start there with just about everybody. Yeah. Because you need to be able to move your mass forward and receive your mass when you're walking. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Margie, this has been a great conversation. If someone has more questions for you, wants to find you, how can they find you? Um, my website is flowmotioneducation.com and that's with an FS and Frank, like go with the flow, all one word, flow motion education. And uh, mostly not on Facebook or Instagram or if, or if you want to see sunsets from my deck or my kids, my grandkids playing Little League, then you can follow me. I do occasionally, I'm trying to get more professional <laughs> posts, on, but it's under Flow Motion Education, whether it's Facebook or Instagram and um, probably, yeah, that, that's how you find me, um, my website and a little bit on Facebook and Instagram. And I'm trying to do a little more. <laughs> Hey, no one says you have to. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. 
Thank you. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode of Highly Functional and had some great takeaways from it. Now, if you are dealing with your own foot and ankle issues and would love to get back to running and racing again, I highly encourage you to check out runwithhappyfeet.com to find out what it looks like to work with me. Or if you wanna do things even faster and take a deep dive into your specific situation, then book a free call with me at runwithhappyfeet.com slash book dash call. And finally, if you know someone who would benefit from the information provided today, I would love for you to share this podcast with that person. Now go out and have an awesome day.